Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lynn, Nate, and Caleb. That's an original song, right, Lynn? She wrote that. That's amazing. That's, that's a whole gift that I just don't understand. It's incredible. People can write songs like that. Thank you, Lynn, for sharing. That story never gets old. I pray it never gets old that the, the hinges of history center on a baby. Who would have thought that? Who would have come up with this religion where a baby is the centerpiece of all of history, that everything changes when God became a, a human being, not in the form of a warrior on a war horse, but in a baby in a manger. I pray that we never lose sight of the awe and the wonder of that story and the power of that story to transform. Uh, thank you, Lynn, for reminding us of the power of the light of the world. We talked about that at our candlelight service on Friday night, how the darkness, even though it seems so full and so powerful, that the light of the world is going to prevail, that the darkness has not overcome the true light of the world. Today we're going to talk about growth, growth, moving forward into 2022. I know a lot of you probably are going to make resolutions this week. That's great. I'm all for resolutions. But I want to make sure that what we're growing in are the things of God, that our resolutions aren't just about being successful or losing weight or whatever it may be, but that our resolutions are about becoming more like Jesus. And what we're going to see in our text for today is, is kind of a blueprint for growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and becoming more like him. What we see in this text is a fuller picture of who Jesus is. We get a little revelation. It's one of those rare childhood stories of Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus' childhood, but today in Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, we get one of those glimpses of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And I can relate to 12-year-old boys because I have one in my house right now. So we're going to see uh, some similarities and probably a lot of differences between my 12-year-old and between Jesus Christ. So will you stand in honor of God's Word today as I read our text for today? Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. 
Again, we, we get a glimpse here of what kind of upbringing Jesus had. We know that the, the, the Holy Family uh, must have been a devout family because it says here that every year they went up to Jerusalem as per the law, as per the customs of the Jews. They made the pilgrimage up. Everything goes up to Jerusalem. It was on a hill for the Feast of Passover. And this was an incredible time in, 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 the, in the land of, of in the city of Jerusalem. We're told that 200,000 Jews would gather in this city for the Feast of Passover. And it, nowhere was busier than the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is where all the ritual sacrifices of Passover occurred. And, and every family would bring a sacrificial lamb. The father would bring the lamb up to the temple for the sacrifice on the actual day of Passover. This perfect spotless lamb whose blood would be caught by the priest in basins of silver and gold and then splashed on the altar as an atoning sacrifice, a sin offering to be uh, then skinned and then burned on the altar. We know that, that Jews were told to bring their firstborn sons uh, even a few years before their, their bar mitzvah, when they became a son of the commandment at the age of 13. That's when they became a full-fledged member of the synagogue. So there's probably good reason to think that Jesus, as a 12-year-old, went with Joseph and maybe one or two of his younger brothers up to the Temple Mount to see this amazing ritual unfold, this powerful moment of sacrifice and worship when the priest would sing the Hallel Psalms from uh, the, the, the Psalter as they would announce what's going on and they would all worship God for what he has done for them through the blood of the Lamb. And of course, Jesus is taking this all in. Jesus is experiencing this worship movement knowing that he is essential to it. That in fact, he is the perfect spotless lamb who would eventually take away the sins of the world. He was taken in the sights. He was taken in the sounds. He was taken in the, the smells, recalling all those scriptures that referred to all the various parts of the rituals that are happening there at the Temple Mount. And he knew that something about his own life was soon to fulfill all of these rituals and make them not in, in, incomplete, but make them complete. Jesus' blood would usher in a whole new covenant because his blood would speak a better word than the blood of Abel, or of all the blood, of all the sacrificial lambs year after year in Jerusalem. So apparently Jesus is, is soaking it in. He's, he's watching the unfolding glory of God's story about to turn the page on the chapter of the story of everything ever. And not only is he worshiping there at the, the, the worship times, but even in the days following the Passover, he's conversing with the scribes and with the teachers and the experts on the law there in the temple courts outside of the, the, the actual altar and worship areas in the temple. And apparently he's so engrossed in what is happening there out in the, the courts of the temple that he misses the caravan back to Jerusalem. It's an interesting story because we don't know how much Jesus knew of his divinity. We know that, that theology teaches us correctly that Jesus was 100% human. 
He was fully human. There was no part of him that was ghost or spirit, right? This is what chapter six is probably about, Jared, in your book that you're talking about today. But neither was, was Jesus uh, only human. He was also 100% divine. He was fully God, 100% God and 100% man. How can that be? It's a divine miracle, the incarnation of God, the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus. And so we don't know what we, exactly the reasons were that he missed the caravan, but we do know that he was not deliberately causing his parents uh, to fear and to worry because he was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without what? Without sin. 1 John 3.5 says in Jesus there is no sin. He's not trying to scare his parents. They assumed he was in the group because it was a huge group traveling back up north through the dangerous area of Samaria, back up to Galilee where Nazareth was. And they went a whole day thinking, of course, he's here with us. And any of you who've ever lost a kid in public knows that feeling of sheer panic and, and you just start to sweat and you're embarrassing people because you're yelling their name and you're running around looking for them like crazy. It's terrifying when you can't find your kid. And that's what happens to Mary and Joseph. Can you imagine losing the son of God? <laughs> I mean, that's a, you know, you only have one job, keep the Messiah safe, okay? And now he's probably been kidnapped by Samaritans. Who knows where he is? But Jesus, in the meantime, is having a seminar He's having a three-day conference there in the temple courts of Jerusalem. And so his parents went one day out and then one day back, and then they, they spend the night in Jerusalem. They find him on the third day. Look at verses 46 to 47 again. After three days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions isn't that interesting that he's listening and asking questions? If it was me, I'd be teaching, you know, I'd be saying, you guys are all foolish. Let me tell you what's really, he's listening, asking questions. And all who heard him, even his questions, were amazed at his understanding. And he's giving a few answers too. He's giving some answers and they're all blown away, of course, because Jesus has insight as of the Father, the only Father, the only Son from the Father. He's a 12-year-old boy. And, and in that culture, you had to approach your elders with deference, with humility. So Jesus is not even 13, and he's asking these pointed questions that apparently no one has ever asked these, these rabbis and these scholars. And they, they haven't considered these questions. And he's listening, not with the pride of, you know, one of those know-it-all, gotcha people like, yeah, what's your answer to that? Ha! You got nothing. That's not how Jesus is listening. He's listening in love. He's listening with the heart, the very heart of God to open the eyes of these blind guides, these Pharisees and teachers of the law to what God's actually doing through the Passover and that the Lamb of God had indeed come. I'm sure there were lots of, you know, boy geniuses. You all had that person in your class. We always had one kid in my seminary class who uh, just blew the curve, you know what I mean? We all failed, and then she got 100, and we're like, oh, great. You know, just showed that you could do it. Jesus was different, though. 
He's not just a know-it-all. What was amazing is that he's asking these questions in genuine love. He's asking these questions in humility because he's asking these things with insight, with not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge born out of a relationship with God the Father. But then Mama shows up, verse 48, and she puts it in to the seminar. Look at verse 48. You've all been there. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. The Greek for great distress means we've been searching for you in pain. It has pained us looking for you. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. She had just called him son and said, your father and I, it's never good when mom says, your father and I, right? And that's what she says to Jesus. Your father and I, wait till your father hears about this. And he says, no, 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 I'm in my father's house. And I'm not just your son. I have a father who is greater than any earthly father, and I must be in his house. This is the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It's the first thing he says in the whole entire narrative. And it's two questions he asks. Two questions. Why are you looking for me? And didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Those questions mark a, a, a dramatic shift in the Gospel of Luke. Now Jesus takes up his mantle as the main protagonist in this narrative of Luke that he's telling. All of a sudden, Jesus takes his rightful place as the main character. And, and what he's saying by simply asking these two pointed questions is remarkable. Because again, he's saying that my father is not any earthly dad, but my father is Yahweh, the God of all creation, the Lord of all. And it's necessary for me to be here with my father in order to fulfill my role as his son, as the Messiah, as the anointed rescuer who is sent by God to, sit, to save God's people and to work sin and death backwards. He would be obedient to his father. This is foreshadowing, right? That Jesus would be the one who is obedient even unto death, even unto death on a, a cross as an atoning sacrifice for us. So how did Jesus' parents take it? Did, did he still get grounded, you think? <laughs> Look at verse 50. Verse 50, sorry. They, they didn't understand it. So you went down. They didn't understand it. They couldn't get it. They didn't know what he was saying. What do you mean you're in your father's house? Mary had prophesied how God would use her son in the song, the Magnificat. I preached on that a couple of weeks ago but she hadn't connected all the dots yet. Joseph and Mary still weren't quite sure what was going on. So Jesus' questions don't make sense to Mary and Joseph because they can't possibly imagine the scope of all that's going to change because of their baby boy. Their incomprehension, though, isn't an excuse for Jesus to disobey them. So look at verse 51. <clears throat> we have a 12-year-old boy again. And it seems like he's always looking for any excuse to disobey us or to do something to defy us. 
But being the son of God is as good a reason as any to defy an earthly parent better than any excuse than you've ever come up with, Jude. But look at verse 51. He went down with them. He, he didn't keep going with his seminar. He said, okay. And he, and he got up and he said, guys, I got to go. And he went with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. The God of all who had put on flesh was submissive to earthly parents. The word for submissive comes from two Greek words, hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means to place. Jesus, who was in very nature God, but didn't consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, placed himself under the authority of his earthly parents. You hear that, kids? <laughs> Submitting isn't a sign of weakness. Submitting is a sign of strength. Just because you have reason to one-up someone or, and do your own thing doesn't mean that you should. And that kind of willing submission only comes with Christian maturity. And the reverse is true too. The result of obedient submission is Christian maturity. Christian maturity leads to obedient submission and obedient submission leads to Christian maturity. Everything in our, our fallen, sinful nature wants to rebel, wants to defy authority, wants to push back, especially when we know that we're in the right, when we have the upper hand. But when we, by God's grace and for his glory, are able to say, not my will, not my will, but yours, O oh God, be done. We are growing in grace. And that's what happens to Jesus. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. If you're looking at your outline, I promise we're going to get to those outlines eventually, but, but here's where we're going. Jesus didn't stay stagnant as a 12-year-old. He, he grew. He matured. He changed. He, he grew in every way. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. You know, I served as a youth pastor for 12 years before coming here to Woodmont, and, and I've had my share of just, you know, very inappropriate and very uh, awful uh, things that, that usually, you know, boys, high school, middle school boys had said in my presence, and I would often just say to them, guys, guys, Ephesians 4.15, Guys, Ephesians 4.15, come on. And Ephesians 4.15 says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. I don't know why, but men seem to take a while to grow up sometimes, don't we? Grow up. I was at a church planner's meeting recently, even though I'm not a church planner, uh, far from it, but they were talking about, ah, oh, now that we have a building, we have to, you know, take care of it. We have to put all this money into it. It was so much more fun when we were meeting at a library at the school. We just got to roll in and roll out. And the guy who leads our, our, our pastor's group said, hey, you know what, guys? Grow up. <laughs> Grow up. Put on your big boy pants and take care of your building. Because it's what God wants you to do. It's what mature Christians do. Take care of your space. Grow up. 
You're not a church planner anymore. You're a pastor. Grow up. I thought that was really poignant, poignant. And it relates to this. Sometimes we need to grow up. There's a maturation that should be taking place, not only in Jude's life, not only in the life of Davy and other preteens, but it should be happening in all of our lives. There are many of you here I know who have been Christians longer than I have been alive. Some of you have been Christians twice as long as I've been alive. That's great, but we should still be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone who claims to follow Christ should be growing. I saw an article uh, just this past week uh, about the differences between Simon Peter of the Gospels. Remember that guy? He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always leaping before he looks. He's always saying stuff off the top of his head to the point where Jesus eventually looks at him square in the eyes and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not set on things of God, but on things of the world. Just get behind me and and grow up and be quiet. (laughs) Contrast that dude with the guy that wrote 1st and 2nd Peter. He has grown. That is a pastorally wise letter. Both of those letters are so rich with the guy who has so much humility and grace and insight into the things of God. It's not the same person. What happened? He grew up. Peter matured and changed and grew up. You know, I believe that every single person in the world is here because Jesus is the friend of sinners. Everyone is welcome here. I mean, everyone is welcome at Woodmont because Jesus is the friend of sinners and all of us are in the same boat of sin. None of us have any right to exclude anyone from gathering with us here at Woodmont because Jesus didn't exclude anyone from his presence. Little kids, let them come. Sick and and diseased, let them come. Scandalous men and women of whom the whole town was gossiping about, let them come. Tax collectors, the scum of society, you know, derided and hated by everyone, all the good Jews couldn't stand them. The proud, the rich, the, the poor, the embarrassing, let them come. Come to me, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let all come to me, he says, but he also says, take my yoke upon you. What does Jesus' yoke do to you? It changes you. It's a yoke. It's easy and his burden is light, but we take that yoke on us and we are changed. Jesus accepts you into his presence just as you are right now. I've had people in my office tell me, you don't know what I've done, Nathan. Jesus couldn't possibly accept me as I am. And the truth is he does. He welcomes you just as you are are right now, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. He loves you too much to let you stay that way. He puts his yoke, he offers his yoke to you, and as you take it upon yourself, you are changed. You grow up. You're maturing in Christ. And what does that mean to come to him? 
A few chapters later in Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why do you take up a cross? Because you're going to die. Because you're going to die. To come after Jesus is a call to die to yourself. People who follow Jesus are to be born again into a new life after they die to themselves and then to grow into this new person. The journey of a Christian is a journey of growth, of becoming more like Jesus and less like our old selves. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In church, we call that process discipleship. And it's, it's one of the, the five purposes, the five triangles that we have here. And I like the way my friend Scotty Smith says it. He calls this journey growing in grace. Scotty has a series of tweets I've shared with you before, signs you're growing in grace. It's kind of like you might be a redneck if only for Christians in the maturing process. You might be growing in grace if on a two-lane road becoming one lane, you don't speed up and jet around three extra cars. Guilty. You don't try to take 23 items through the 10-item speed checkout line at the grocery store. You catch people doing it right in a three-to-one ratio to doing it wrong. A sign you're growing in grace is evident when you receive feedback non-defensively and you give it clearly and lovingly. You pray for people you'd really rather gossip about. You give up the last word. A sign you're growing in grace is praying for our government rather than simply being cynical about our government. You use less labels to dismiss people or marginalize their comments. You throw less pity parties because you go to Jesus quicker than you go to self-contempt. That's a good one. You try to be a friend more than worry about others being a good friend to you. You fall in love with scripture. You can't wait to gather with the saints to sing God's praises. You seek to understand before you seek to be understood. You try to be a friend to the friendless for no other reason than Jesus would. There's a bunch more, but we'll just leave it there. I don't know about you, but my typical reaction to those is, yikes, I gotta work on those. <laughs> Maybe that's a sign in itself that I'm growing in grace. The point I wanna leave us with is, is on your outline today. Christian maturation, Christian discipleship isn't about following the rules more closely. It's not about knowing the right answers. We're told in, in, in verse 52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Christian discipleship is about being more like Jesus in every aspect of your life. It's about being more like Jesus in every part of your life. Jesus doesn't want to grow in grace. He doesn't want us to grow in grace in just our minds or in just our hearts or in just our social dealings. He wants every aspect of who we are to be conformed to his own likeness. So I've identified on your outline the four key areas in this verse, verse 52, that we may need to check on and see if we're submitting and growing in grace in these areas. First, Jesus increased mentally 
mentally, that's the first blank. In wisdom, what are you putting in your minds? Are you a student of scripture? Are you asking the right questions? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Are you taking in more social media, Netflix, or cable news than the word of God? <clears throat> or maybe like me, you read a lot of books about the Bible, but as my seminary professor said, don't read books about the book more than you read the book. Read the book first and foremost, or watch shows about the book. James Dunn was talking to you about watching The Chosen is great, but make sure you go to the source. Let's immerse ourselves daily in God's word. Let's listen to life-giving friends and face-to-face -face conversations. You've heard the old saying, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. And watch your character because it becomes your destiny. That's not scripture, but I think it's biblical. And it starts with what? Your thoughts. What you take into your mind. Watch what you take into your mind because it will have a great impact on how wise you are. Wisdom isn't about knowing stuff. Remember, wisdom is skill. It's being good at godly living. And what you put in your mind will affect how good you are at godly living. Second, Jesus grew physically. He grew in stature. A lot of you may say, well, I'm not trying to grow in stature. I'm trying to, to reduce in stature in 2022. That's fine. What I'm talking about is our bodies matter. Our bodies are God's temple. We know that. What we do with our bodies then matters. We're not disembodied spirits floating around. That's Gnosticism, right, Jared? That's chapter 6. That you can't just be a disembodied spirit. Neither are we, as some of the Renaissance philosophers like Descartes would say, are, neither are we minds on a stick. We're not just brains on a stick that walk around thinking, I think, therefore I am. No, we are embodied creatures because God made us that way. The whole point of Advent is that God, what, took on flesh. What we do with our bodies then, we better pay attention. How we treat our bodies matters. What we put in our bodies matters because that's how God made us. and It affects our minds and our souls because we are holistic creatures where everything is connected because God made us that way. Third, Jesus grew spiritually in favor with God. That's what most of us think of when we think of Christian growth. When I challenged you to grow in 2022 according to God's ways, most of you thought of this aspect, and that's good. Growing spiritually means showing evidence of all of those growing in grace tweets that, that Scotty Smith writes, because more simply, I, I think that growing in grace not only means showing that we have this grace of Jesus, but it may mean, more simply, just knowing Jesus more. Are you walking more closely with Christ in 2022? Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Spiritual growth is seen when doing what Jesus would do becomes second nature to us because we're so closely connected with him and the Holy Spirit is thriving in our souls. And then finally, Jesus grew socially in favor with man. Who you spend your time with matters. 
It matters for your discipleship. Iron sharpens iron, says the proverb. So who are you running with? Who do you admire? Who do you look up to? Who do you aspire to be like? Maybe you're lonely because you've longed to spend time with the wrong people and you're not spending any time with anybody. Maybe it's time to invest in the people that God has put around you as you grow socially. So two questions for us today as we close, and they play off each other. One, are you growing in grace? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus? And then two, do you possess an obedient, submissive spirit to the things of God? Jesus shows us how holistic growth, spiritual growth, mental growth, physical growth, every aspect, comes from an obedient, submissive spirit. My guess is that we probably all, everyone here probably needs to repent of going our own way and needs to recommit to simple obedience, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Then we're really going to start to mature. Then we're going to grow in those aspects of maturation that maybe we've been lacking in over the last decade or more. When we trust and obey, we're going to become more and more like Jesus and less like our old selves. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us a blueprint here in this text for what it means to grow up, to mature in every aspect of our lives. God, you told us that the greatest commandment is to love you with all that we are, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. God, you show us that we are holistic creatures, that every aspect of our lives matters to you. Forgive us, O oh God, for withholding our bodies from you. Forgive us, some of us, God, for from withholding our minds from you from withholding our conscience from you, from withholding our aspirations from you. Today, oh God, may we recommit to surrender every aspect of who we are to you in, in grateful, humble worship as a living sacrifice to you in order that you may take us and do with us what you will because we know that will be a better way to live than going our own way every time. God, we believe that. May we grow in 2022. May one year from now, may we look back on 2022 and say, I can't believe how God has taken us and grown us in every aspect of our lives. We want to be more like Jesus, oh God. We want to be less and less like our old fallen selves. We want to live more fully into the new life that you've given us. We know that we can only do so by your grace, and it will be for your glory. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. We're going to sing about the God who became an infant lowly, infant holy, and infant lowly. If you need to respond today in some way, shape, or form, if you want to come and, and pray at the altar, if you want to just come and, and talk to me about becoming a member of Woodmont Baptist Church, maybe you want to be baptized, you've never been baptized, maybe you want to receive the free grace that is yours in Jesus Christ for the very first time and say, I'm ready to surrender 
all that I am to Jesus and to die to myself and to be raised into a whole new life. If that's you today, don't delay any longer. Make that decision now as we sing. You're welcome to come and talk to me here or come and talk to me. I'll be in the, the south lobby after the service. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, please deal with the Lord honestly. Let's stand and sing. Infant holy, infant lowly.